us in the place we need to hear them today. Something special, something normal, something that just strikes us as a thing that we need to know. Pour your Holy Spirit on us now and center us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. People of God said together, Amen. So what's your favorite indulgence? Even that word just sounds like it's just an indulgence. Is it chocolate? Whose favorite indulgence is chocolate? Raise your hand. Got any chocolate lovers in this room? Okay, all right. Maybe it's just other candy or sugary treats. That's your thing. Your sugary sweet. Anything that's sweet, right? Maybe it's salty or savory things. You just love something really good and salty, you know, something that's really tasty like that. Maybe you like binge-watching television, so you like watching episode for episode and watch a whole season before you even think about sitting there. that you? That's you? Okay. Maybe it's sleeping late. Who likes to sleep late? Debbie. She's the only, Debbie's the only person. Debbie. There's somebody over there, too. Or a Sunday afternoon nap. Who loves a Sunday afternoon nap? Who loves one of those? Those are awesome, Margie. That's it. Maybe it's something else. The scripture from Isaiah is talking about indulging at the very beginning of it. And I invite you to follow along with your YouVersion Bible app. And you can see all the things. And there's some special things in there today as well. We find ourselves in Isaiah 55, verse 1. It says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55 would have been music to the ears of the people of Israel at the time. Because these verses in Isaiah meet the people of Israel as they're returning from exile, where they couldn't indulge in anything. Those returning had been living in a foreign land that was hostile to their religious way of life. And yet they had also seen others, mostly non-Jews, living with plenty. And so there was plenty all around them while they had very little. And now God was inviting them back to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Where they could live in abundance, where they could drink and eat out of all of God's provisions for the first time in, in years and years and years, no longer subsisting on meager means of just making it day by day and watching everybody else have plenty. In verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. That is not a key verse for you to go out and go have all-you-can-eat smorgasbord every day. That would be called proof texting once again. Never take a verse out of its context. But see, we as humans, we hunger for comfort and security. The assurance everything is going to be okay when life threatens to overwhelm us. Amen? That's what we look for. That's the indulgence Maybe one of the reasons why we love a good plentiful potluck or a covered dish dinner. Who loves a good potluck or a covered dish dinner? 
Only some of you. Some of you who did not vote will no longer be allowed to come to the covered dish dinners whatsoever if you didn't vote. Now who loves a covered dish dinner or a potluck? Ah, more hands. Right? We like gathering around tables, sharing our lives as well as the food. It's a part of who we are. There's so many jokes about Methodists and Baptists and others and about covered dish dinners because they're true. I've been to countless potluck dinners in my life and I can't remember ever going and not finding what someone called calorie-laden goodness spread like a crazy, crazy quilt of love and hope. Traditional comfort foods, foods from our childhood. They both fill our bellies. They also fill our hearts. They are the things we want when we're sick or are hurting. And isn't it almost miraculous how there's always just enough, like manna from heaven, never too little, never too much, except deviled eggs. They are always gone by the time that I get to them, and that's my favorite. Is that right, Shelly? That's right. I believe someone takes the last deviled egg before I get there just so I won't have the deviled egg at the end of the line. She is faithful folk. We know how to fuel the body and how to make love the central ingredient of any dish. When we lack words, we bring food. When we wish and want to show comfort and care, it often comes in the form of casseroles and hot dishes during times of despair, all seasoned with the spirit of love and garnished with a sprig of hope that things will be better, that this time will pass. Comfort food and smorgasbord tables are not, however, usually associated with the season of Lent, are they? Tradition compels us to think of Lent as a time of self-denial, an intense introspection, contemplation, and other big words like that. This season puts itself apart as a time of fasting from the luxurious and the indulgent. The whole purpose of Lent is to give up something usually that is something like chocolate, right? We had pancakes at the very beginning because all the things in pancakes are all the things you couldn't eat traditionally in Lent, including eggs, which is why eggs were so important at Easter. It's about fasting. Fasting from something. We mentioned this before. Maybe it's fasting from different kinds of food. Maybe it's fasting from Facebook or whatever. Fasting from being a jerk. A lot of times as Christians, that's how we get pegged. You miss the whole part, not being a jerk, is one of the cartoons when the guy gets to heaven and says, yep, your name's right here and you're in. But you miss the whole part, not being a jerk about your faith. fasting. Speaking of fasting, who has ever fasted? Who's ever fasted? Raise your hand. Who's ever fasted medically too? If you've ever fasted medically, you've ever had to have a procedure and you fasted, so you, you know what that's like too. But biblical fasting is defined differently and there's a whole 
uh, article attached in your version event, and you can look at that up and, and see all the information about it. Biblical fasting can be defined as abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. And I wanted to say this because there's not really any place really to talk about fasting somewhere, but I think that most of us don't really understand what fasting even is. And just won't admit it and say it out loud. So this will give you a chance to know what fasting is without having to admit that you don't know what fasting is. Simply going without food because it's not available or because of medical reasons is not biblical fasting. We do that, but that's not biblical fast. Nehemiah, David, the early church, and Jesus all fasted for confession and for repentance and for guidance. Jesus fasted to acknowledge his dependence on God and before he made big decisions like choosing his disciples. That's a pretty big decision. You wonder why he chose them. Well, he fasted and prayed before he ever made a big decision like that. Jesus expected his disciples to fast, but he did not command it. And quite honestly, if he had commanded it, would we really still follow his commands? There are lots of other things he commands us to do too that we don't do, like loving our neighbor. But he doesn't command it. There was a huge part of the early church. There are actually three types of fasts commonly practiced by Christians. The first is a partial fast, described in the book of Daniel, where for three weeks he abstained only from delicacies that meant meat and wine. Those of you who have done the Daniel plan have heard about that. That's what it's about, right? For three weeks. My friend Sean Stanfield, every year for three weeks in January... He does the Daniel plan fast to start off the new year in the right way. That's one way to fast. Supernatural fasts. These are total fasts. No food, solid or liquid, and no water. That's a serious fast. Paul, Moses, Elijah all did this. Then there's a complete fast, which is water or juice fasting especially when fasting for an extended period because you can't go without water for more than three days. Your body can't live longer than that without water. And juice replaces that. So a juice fast is very different than just a water fast, but it, it gets to that humbling experience of denying your desire for solid, chewable food. That's the whole point of that particular thing. We like chewable, solid food. You ever had to only drink liquids or something like that because of medical stuff? You don't like it. After a while, you get sick and tired of having to drink broth and broth and everything else because your body desires that. So one way to humble yourself is taking that desire away. The youth will do the juice fast when they do 30-hour famine, which everybody's always scared to death about. Every youth like, oh, my gosh, I can't go that long without just drinking juice. Every parent's like, oh, my gosh, my kid's not going to make it. Both of those are incorrect. 30-hour famine, that 30-hour is a great way to center yourself. And you really don't really notice it because your body really doesn't need solid food to exist, especially for that amount of time. Or just try something simple. Skip one meal. Not because you're too busy to eat. We do it all the time. We skip a meal all the time and just like, you know, don't think about it. And your body doesn't think about it either. If that's easy for you, skip two meals. 
Eat one meal for a day. Just try it. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then that means you don't want to humble yourself before God. Because that's the problem. The problem is we don't want to do it because we don't want to do anything that, that forces us to change our life. That forces us to have to break outside of the patterns that we know that are a part of who we are. You know? We want to, to eat sugary stuff at the same time as watching our blood sugar go up. You can't do both. We want to somehow get healthy, but we don't want to exercise. If you don't change anything, then expect to get the same thing that you already have. Fasting is a good way to break us out of that, an easy way to do that. Take it simple at first, but try something different. Try it once during this rest of this Lenten season. And so in Lent, this lively God feast that we're talking about in this text of God's table is the last thing we would expect to see embodied in the words of our lectionary scripture for this week. And this is the scripture that's been read for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the scripture for this week in Lent. That here we all are, the same duty-bound to come to God's table, it says, no matter the state of our wallets or the state of our hearts, Isaiah says. Everybody come to the table. And so now we've journeyed through two weeks of Lent. It's been two weeks. We found ourselves grounded in returning and offering the first fruits of the harvest. Remember, that was week one. And imitating and being uplifted by the promises that were suspended like the stars in the sky that Abram received from God. And this week, we are asked to leave our chosen pathways to repent, which literally means to turn around, and to turn back to the heart of a God who always has plenty good room at the table for us. Repenting with all your heart. Before we can fully hear the words of Isaiah 55 in any kind of meaningful way, we have to consider the whole context in which these words were written. The people of Israel find themselves at the end of a very long exile in Babylon, as I said earlier. It's almost over. They're getting ready to go home. But even the recollections of the promised land and what it was and how to inhabit the land have all faded from their collective memory. If these exiles had heard of the promises of the everlasting covenant made to Abraham and David at all, it was only in hushed whispers and half-remembered tales. It must have sounded more like dreams than reality to them. And that's why Isaiah talks to them. In verse 3 he says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that you do not know shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. See, it appears the people of Israel were both feasting and fasting. And you might ask, well, how is that possible? 
How can you both feast and fast at the same time? It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can you do both? Well, here's the interesting part. While they were feasting on an abundance of scarcity, fed to them by their captors for years, that there wasn't enough to go around. And they're full of the belief that they will never have enough. That will never be enough. I see that same thing in us all the time. That we'll never have enough, so we have to somehow take from others and somehow keep keep it to ourselves because we'll never have enough or we'll never be enough. We can never be good enough. It's not true. Why do we believe that lie? Why do we live into that lie of scarcity, of self-esteem? But while they were feasting on the words of their captor, they were also fasting. They fasted from the abundant promises of God, you see. And from the assurance that God would one day lead them back home. They were fasting from that. This fast left them starved of hope, starved in their hearts, starved of a future. Because they were fasting from the promises of God. And in this malnourished state, the call to come to a table of plenty must have sounded very sounded too good to be true. This can't possibly be. How are we also guilty of feasting and laboring for things that don't satisfy us? We think of things in our life that are gonna, oh, this will this will be some I'll be so much better when I can do this or when I achieve this or when I have this. And then when we do, it makes no difference. We still are empty, unfulfilled. We rise top of the ladder of corporate whatever. And we get up there and you realize it doesn't look any different from up here than it did from down there. Actually, more responsibility, more than I want. We get a bigger house and we go, this is going to be the house, the perfect house for us now. It's the same house. More rooms to clean, to take care of. More places to put stuff we don't need and stuff it into our garages where we can't put a car anymore. Which is what a garage is for, by the way, in case you didn't know. It's actually for your cars, not for your stuff. All these things, you know, if I just played better, you know, in the praise team, this is always a constant thing, and I, and I hear it from everyone. It's just kind of like, and so the wrestling is, gosh, I really messed that piece up. And I'm like, I don't care. I care that you try to do your best. I care that you don't, you know, just go up there and try to wing it. But we're all going to do something at some point to make a mistake. It happens all the time, but we think somehow we're not good enough to do something. I'm not good enough to teach. I'm not good enough to lead a small group. I'm not good enough to help serve other people. I don't know how to do that. See, we fast. I can't start my own business. We fast from the promises of God that say, you know what, you can do this. That I will give you the strength and the ability and and all the things you need to have to be able to accomplish the purpose that I have given to you. Amen? Amen? We fast from that, and we feast on the things that we shouldn't feast on. And the invitation of Isaiah 55 was also a call to repent. As I mentioned before, literally repent just means to turn around, metanoia. 
turn around. It doesn't mean just to stop. Yeah, repent means you have to turn around. So it means if you're going in the wrong direction, you can't just stop going in the wrong direction. You actually have to turn around and you have to go in the right direction. You see, it involves both. That's what repentance means. And it's a call to accept God's gracious, irresistible invitation to come and buy and eat and listen and delight to break the chains of the long fast, of the things that bind you, that say you aren't all those things, that you can't do it, that there's no promise for your life, that there's no future. It's that call to break that fast. While God holds out a vision of abundance and plenty for the people in the opening verses of Isaiah 55, how else does Isaiah urge people to come? By seeking and repenting and trusting in God's mercy. And then it goes on to say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In John Wesley's sermon on working out our own salvation, he says that salvation is carried on by convincing grace usually in Scripture termed repentance, which brings a larger measure of self-knowledge and a farther deliverance from the heart of stone. Afterwards, we experience the proper Christian salvation, whereby through grace we are saved by faith, consisting of these two grand branches, justification and sanctification. Say that with me. Justification and sanctification. Impress your friends. Use those words on them when you go out to lunch. By justification, we mean that we are saved from the guilt of sin and restored to the favor of God. Justify is a legal term. It means to be made right. And by sanctification, we are saved from the power and root of sin and restored to the image of God. Sanctified means we made holy. Convicting grace and repentance is a part of our journey of returning back to the heart of God. You have to have that, that convicting grace and that repentance. Though our culture tends to shy away from the notions of sin, we don't even like that word. Neither Scripture nor John Wesley is afraid of discussing that topic. John Wesley points out that part of God's grace is the conviction of sin, which comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Repentance can be seen as a porch on the front front of a house, a place where you initially connect with someone before you go inside. Its purpose is to lead us into a deeper and more meaningful area where relationships can become more intimate where strangers become friends, where you sit together at the table under God's grace. Then Wesley continues, says, and gradually increases from that moment as a grain of mustard seed, which at first is the least of all seeds, but afterward puts forth large branches and becomes a great tree till in another instant the heart is cleansed from all sin and filled with pure love to God 
and man. But even the, that love increases more and more till we grow up in all things into Him that is our head, till we attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the journey of sanctification after we are justified. To become more like Him who is the head every day. Sometimes we go, I, there's no way I can do that. I can't be like Jesus. Nope, you sure can't. That's not the call. And you can't do it by yourself anyways. I is not a word when it comes to God. But we can become what God has called us to be when we allow God to work on us and to change our hearts and to give us the strength and the power and the ability and the forgiveness that we need to accomplish those things. Amen? And God's grace operates in surprising ways. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We try to somehow outthink God. It doesn't work that way. Nor are my ways, your ways, my ways, says the Lord. Yet somehow we think that God operates like us. That's the fault of every creation for the Creator. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How many stars are there out in the galaxy? What did we say last time? Remember? A lot. Very good. Right on target, Shelly. Thank you. What, sept septillion, right? Septillion. That's how much higher our way, God's ways are from us than we could possibly understand and try to fathom and figure out. And as we look at our, out at our world this Lent, we see a similar type of feasting. We see it all the time. Scarcity. It rules our world. Fear. Fear drives us. The fear of the other. The fear of anything that's not us drives us more and more. Fear of people. Fear of things. Fear of the stock market crashing. Fear of everything. We mentioned this on Wednesday night. But the fact is everybody thought in 2008 we were done. Everybody started scrambling to crawl into their hole. And to call it over. In 1999, before 2000 hit, everybody thought we were done. And now here we are. It's 2019. And every analyst, analyst always says, financial analyst always says the same thing whenever a financial thing happens, like the Dow goes up and down, all that. They always say, stay the course. Don't sell your stocks. Don't go crazy. Don't be fearful. And every generation has to go through that same piece. Because we're a fearful population. We distrust. If you're not like me, you're my enemy. It's become even more and more blatant over the years. Fear, distrust, scarcity. We feast on them. Evil feasts on them. It just fills us up. You want some fear? I'll give you lots of fear. You can have a smorgasbord of fear. You can have all kinds of different kinds of fear. We'll give you 15 types of fear so you can make sure you get your full amount of fear from everything out here. It seems to be the hallmark of our well-fed society. Society based upon things that aren't sustainable, don't last. Perhaps we need to repent of our feasting on the things that do not satisfy that we try and try again and they don't 
meet that need. When we turn our hearts and lives around and incline our ears to God's invitation to wisdom's table. That sound is strange to our ears to turn to God's table of plenty instead of the world's table of scarcity. Nothing is free, we say. Nothing is without cost. Everything costs something. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, of course there is. (laughs) All the time. I take Debbie out to eat, and I say, Debbie, I'm paying for your lunch. Guess what? That's a free lunch. Right? So sure, we receive free things all the time. We have stuffed ourselves for so long with greed and cynicism and accuracy that we've forgotten what real nourishment looks like. We are malnourished on the presence of God in our lives. Amen? We go around all the time thinking, there's got to be more to life than this, and there is, and then we keep eating the same stuff again and again and wonder why. It's like opening that bag of chips that you know is not going to do you any good. You eat the whole bag, and then you go, I can't believe I ate the whole bag. Or the Oreos, where you can have two for 140 calories, okay? 140 calories and two Oreos. That's the same amount as in a Coke. You eat... Now, who eats two Oreos? Now, some of you think that the whole sleeve, one whole sleeve, is actually one serving size. That's not what it is. It's two, 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 my friend, two, two Oreos. And then we wonder why we feel so bad. We talk about all the time the junk we put into our bodies, and then we wonder why we feel so bad. Well, what about our minds? What about our hearts? What are you putting into those things that's positive, that's, that's nurturing, that's nourishing, as opposed to, well, it's okay, or it really isn't good for me, but I love it. There's nothing to fear from the invitation to the table of plenty, is what Isaiah is saying. Let them return to the Lord, Isaiah proclaims, that he may have mercy on them. Solid and second helpings of repentance and forgiveness are served at the table. The grace of God is far more filling than anyone else in which we have mistakenly put our trust. God reminds Isaiah's listeners that the ways of God are not our ways. Thank God for that. Because if God operated like I did or you did, what would that be like? The way of God leads us to a table where all are welcomed and fed and are claimed and beloved. Amen? That's the table we're talking about. It never runs empty. And maybe this table might begin to sound familiar to us as Christ's table where Christ invites in the language of the, of the book of worship and the communion liturgy. It says, all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. This is the feast that we should choose this Lent. And as for fasting, well, Isaiah tells us of a fast that is fruitful. Another part, in Isaiah 58, 6 through 11, he says this, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? 
Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am, if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise to the darkness and your gloom to be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your need in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water shall never fail. That's the fast. That's the fast that Isaiah said we're supposed to be doing. To do these things. We still have a way to go this Lenten season. If you're treating it like any other time of the year, you're missing out. If you're just waiting until it's time for Easter to get the candy and to get the fine clothes and everything else so that you can do all those, you're missing the whole purpose of what we do this time of year. The journey is about seeking a way that is not our own way. About following the pathway to God's heart. So the question that I, that I leave you with is, how are you hoping God will provide nourishment and satisfaction for your soul this Lenten season? Where's the feasting and the fasting going on? And may your feasting and fasting bring justice and comfort and living water to your soul and the soul of others. And may your heart find contentment and sustenance for the journey of homecoming and returning to the heart of God and to God's table that is plentiful with repentance and forgiveness. Repent and turn to your heart, turn to God's heart, with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. Amen. This is just bread. Didn't miraculously turn into anything else while I've been holding it. Even when I pray over it, it doesn't turn into anything else. We don't believe in transubstantiation, the idea that it becomes something different. But yet it does become something different. When we receive it in our minds, in our remembrances, in our, in our thoughts and feelings and hearts, it becomes the body of Christ at that last supper. It becomes that opportunity he had to tell the disciples that this ordinary bread I'm eating with you and this ordinary meal is going to be our last together. But there's going to be something extraordinary that's going to happen out of it. So when he gave thanks to God, which he always did, for what was been given to him, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave it to them. Take, eat. This is my body is given for you I do this out of love I do this to offer forgiveness for not only you but the entire world I will do this on your behalf
When the supper was over, he took the cup and in the same way and they passed it around and they, they dipped their bread into it. Still not understanding what's going on and betrayal is about to happen and everything is, is happening all at one time and they're just trying to soak it all in and he's saying all kinds of things they don't understand. And this is my blood poured out for you and for many, forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, remember. It's just grape juice. But in these moments, it becomes for us the reminder, the symbol, the living example, the remembrance of his mighty and gracious love for us. This table is abundant. It's interesting that sometimes we come to this table that it depends on who is pulling the bread, but some of us are more generous than others. Sometimes you get a big piece, sometimes you get a really small piece. Sometimes you get really afraid if you're a pastor that you got a big crowd that all of a sudden you're going to run out of bread, so you start going really small. So if you come right before the end, you get that really small piece. God's love's not like that, though. I can count maybe on my hands, one hand, the number of times I've ever run out of bread, even on Easter. Why is that? It always just seems to work out. Come close. Two bits may be left. This table is abundant. This table is freeing. This table is a table of forgiveness and repentance. A table of welcoming the broken in. It's a table of living water for all those who come who are thirsty. It's a table that will never run dry. And it's a table we're all welcome at. No matter who we are, whether we're children or older or somewhere in between, everyone is welcome to the table of Christ. Because he came for all of us. And so I invite you this morning as you come to this table to think about the things in which you feast. Maybe aren't so good what things you need to fast on and take on. Just the idea of fasting in itself. To let God speak to you and say, God, you know, what you want me to do, I want to try this. Help me to get over the fear, because it's only fear that does that. There's absolutely nothing other reason why. Well, I medically cannot fast for one meal. There are very few of us in the world who cannot do that. And if you're hypoglycemic like I am, you can fast for one meal. Well, a couple of days of that, don't be around me. But all of us can fast on something. Stop feasting. Let's feast on this instead. God's presence. We feast on this, we'll never go hungry. We feast on those things, we will always be come to the table this morning, those who are serving and all of us. Let us pray. Gracious God, may this bread and this juice be for us the reminders, the remembrance of your great love and sacrifice for us. Pour your spirit into them now and let us know your presence. In Jesus Christ's name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we bless these things now. People of God said together,
come to the table this morning. It is Christ who invites you. Not I, the United Methodist Church. And it is an abundant table of love and life and freedom.
river that doesn't run dry. We can feast on the living water of Christ, that we feast on the living body of Christ, and He gives new life. Feast on those things. Fast on the things of this world that tell us something totally different, that we're not good enough, that we don't have enough, that we shouldn't like other people, that people are our enemy, that fear is good. These are not things of God. They are things of the world. Fast from them. Amen. You're dismissed.